Welcome, everybody. My name is Branson Parler, and we're glad to have you joining us for another episode of the Kuiper Collective Podcast. Uh, joining me today is Dr. Jeff Fisher, who also teaches here at Kuiper. So, Jeff, welcome. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be here. So today, uh, let, let's just launch right into our, our topic. Uh, one of the things that we've been talking about a lot lately is uh, theological education, yeah. ministry education, uh, and thinking about where that's at, especially in well, it's 2020. Right. What does ministry education look like? What does theological education look like, especially for people who are uh, not planning to make uh, the academy their full-time place of, of vocation right. and employment? If, if you're being trained theologically to serve in a local church context, uh, what should that look like? Uh, and that's been on our radar for, for several years because we have been at, here at Kuiper thinking about uh, our Master of Ministry program, which has now been underway for just over a year. Uh, and so a lot of maybe this discussion is, is, is stuff that we've been really wrestling with for, for several years, uh, thinking about how do we do theological education, how do we do ministry education uh, in a way that is actually serves the individuals in it and serves church as well. Um, and I, I don't know if the subtitle of this should be burn the seminary to the ground, <laughs> burn the traditional seminary to the ground. Um, that may be the vibe that you're getting. Um, but part of that is, I mean, so Jeff, your area of study is historical theology. When right. I look at seminaries, I think you know, here are uh, institutions and, and really academic programs that have been around in some cases all the way back yeah. to the roots of the Protestant Reformation. Right. Well, and before that, even, uh, in the right. Middle Ages, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, but that at least for us, a lot of, you know, many of our degrees are the result of kind of tweaking, but but still, it's like, let's build something, you know, that works for 1830, and then yeah. we're just going to tweak it yeah. for a couple hundred years. And I'm, I'm not sure that that um, model is the most helpful is is there a sense in which we need to learn from the past i'm not saying scrap it all right but but what does it look like to actually say look at where the church is at look at where we're at and think about theological education for today yeah i think there's so many factors involved in this you know you got the splitting up of disciplines you've got new testament discipline old testament discipline historical theology systematic theology pastoral hmm. theology like you split all those up and then they're in their own academic realm um, and pastors kind of are expected to learn a little bit in each one of those. And then some might go on to specialize in it and end up like us teaching yeah. in graduate in undergraduate and graduate level, getting PhDs, all kinds of things like that. So I think some of it is the, the recent, relatively recent, um, combining together of those things for pastors, for those doing like a master's of divinity, which is this? Is this a graduate degree? Is this formation for ministry? Is this practical training? Well, it's a little bit of everything. Yeah. It, it's almost, it's almost, uh, um, it's kind of a Humpty Dumpty approach. Like let's break this apart. Right. Uh, but then really it's up to you as the individual in seminary yeah. to put this all together right. in some kind of coherent way. Uh, in terms of your actual life, uh, life and ministry, and so, again, for some for some people, maybe they're able to do that well. Uh, for others, and I think this is what we've seen, even in our, our own graduates who go to seminary 
and then who start out in, in a church and they're like, wow, um, there is a lot that right. I was not prepared right. for. Right. And so, so there's this kind of <laughs> this, this misalignment of, yeah. you know, here's what we're training you in. Here's what you need to know. Uh, but then you get into a local church ministry context and, and you realize there's a lot that I just wasn't prepared right. for. There's, there's books and entire workshops and entire conferences on everything seminary did not teach me. Yeah. In ministry that I needed to know for ministry. And there, I mean, there's certainly, there's limitations to what a seminary program or a master's program can actually do in preparing you for ministry. But I also then think, well, maybe that's how we need to reshape how, what we're thinking about what a master's degree is. It's not the go away for three or four years, get everything you need to know, fill up your toolbox, now release you and go deploy all of your tools it's a launching ground and it's something where it's already integrated with the ministry that you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And that practical piece to me is, is what's crucial because I think oftentimes, um, and again, academics like us, yeah. um, e- even though I would say this is part of what makes Kuiper a little bit unique is that we are practitioners where, right. where people who are, uh, either, on staff at churches or heavily involved uh, in in serving in our church context. And so I feel like that's part of the unique flavor that, that we bring to this is that we're not um, just coming at this from a from a theoretical standpoint, right. but thinking about what have we learned in our own life and experience. Um, and 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 when we think then about sort of the practical theology of everyday life and ministry, I think there can be the tendency for academics to almost like look down their noses like that's a lesser yeah that's a lesser thing than kind of the the high right. the high stratosphere of academic learning when in fact it's really the on the ground stuff I think that is the highest level <laughs> because you're having to actually not just talk about this in theory but thinking about what does it look like to walk with people to put this into practice in a ministry context. Uh, that's a very different um, use of theology than people right. are often taught in in seminaries. Well, I mean, I hate to admit it, but as a seminary student, when I was doing my MDiv, I had that view. Like Greek, Hebrew, systematic theology, those are the important things. My pastoral duties class, my uh, preaching was kind of a combination of, well, I'm using my Greek exegesis to make the sermon, and then that's practical. Yeah. Um, But a lot of the practical stuff, evangelism, missions, those kind of classes, I was like, yeah, that's that's second-level stuff. The real deal is systematic theology and exegesis, that kind of stuff. And then I became a pastor. (laughs) And the questions that people are asking... And the real life situations of of baptisms and marriage and stuff like that is like, oh, these practical theology classes are actually really important for me. And I wish that there had been more application and integration of, of not just talking about this in the classroom and then one day you'll go and do that. But that as we're talking about in the classroom, we're also doing it along the way. Yeah. Yeah, and that to me is, as we have set up the Master of Ministry program, that's one of the things that strikes me as most crucial for, and sometimes even difficult to to communicate to people, what is this program? Because we have, I think our culture as a whole uh, has tended to divide kind of schooling or learning for credit and 
whatever else goes on outside the, the classroom. The, and, and so, yeah, so that's, uh, and, and by the way, there's a great book by Ivan Illich called De-Schooling Society, written back in the early 70s, that I think is really helpful for bringing this out, our, the way that our whole culture functions this way. And I think the church has functioned this way, too, mm-hmm. that, to say um, learning is only valid if you have a kind of academic credit or a degree uh, or something behind that, that that sort of validates that, even though a lot of times having that academic credit or that degree doesn't necessarily validate that you can use it, that that, that you can actually, again, thinking about from a ministry perspective that I have this degree, so this is going to translate into here's somebody who's going to minister well. Uh, And I think part of that then is this idea that our our learning community in the Master of Ministry program, it's really two learning communities that... We want to hold out. We value what goes on in the classroom because it's important to reflect and engage uh, in that together as a community of learners, but also to say your ministry context is a key place of learning. Absolutely. Uh, and so that, I think, I, I, I wonder how much the, the church has devalued just the learning that happens yeah. in that context organically. Yeah. Or if the church even sees itself, you know, the average local church, do they see themselves as this is a learning community where we're going to grow people up, where we're going to disciple people, uh, where, I mean, this is a big question I think about a lot of times. Uh, Our church is raising up their next leaders or their next pastors. Is that something that most churches are dedicated to or focused on? And I think the answer is generally no. Right. And if they do, it kind of is um, backed into that we see someone who's got some leadership abilities, perhaps they're demonstrating something in youth group or whatever. And so we have this model where you send them away to some other school to go get the training. Maybe they come back to this church. Maybe they don't. Maybe they go get a call and a job someplace else and serve as the pastor or youth pastor or whatever there. Um, I think the other piece is sometimes you have churches in an area like Grand Rapids where they'd say, yes, we're contributing to that. We have interns come here. Hmm. You know, so we're we're training up leaders by having one of these people who moved away from their church to come to this area. And now for a year or two or three or whatever, they're going to do some learning will be a, a community where we, we see them trained up and we guide them in certain things. And then they'll finish that academic piece and then move on to the next thing. Yeah, it's really that where is the growing up from, you know, from their youth or from from a younger age and having the the kind of shaping that we need the church to be doing for our future leaders. That's the piece that I think is missing in in large degrees and is what I would say is part of what the future of theological education is going to look like. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point because it, it you know, I think it's accurate to say that part of Part of the way that theological education has developed uh, in the North American context is that it is largely um, not integrated with the local right. church. Right. That it's, again, the local church maybe sees something in somebody, and so they raise them up, and then they send them out, they send them elsewhere. Um, and again, that, that's there may be some good dimensions to that, but I think the real question is how do you, how do you reintegrate right. 
educational institutions like Kuiper and the local church so that rather than seeing them as, I mean, really two separate institutions with two different mm-hmm. missions, how do they become reintegrated yeah. so that our churches see themselves as as learning communities in, in a good way and educational institutions understand, I guess, sort of the mission or the purpose that they have to, to actually serve that... That at least if you are a education uh, educational institution that does ministry education, then I would think a key mark of your success <laughs> is can people actually minister well? Right. A- and and then one piece of that analysis that we're saying is that well you can't minister well if you are removed from a ministry context and told just kind of soak up this book learning. Yeah. I love book book learning. Sorry if that sounded book learning, <laughs> like it like it's something negative. But to say you know you're going to do this, we're going to pull you out of any kind of ministry context just so you can can do this. Who is that helping? Yeah, because uh, I, I don't think it's actually helping the individual. I don't think it's actually serving the church in the long run. Um, and, and so this is where you get the danger of seminaries or or other academic institutions just becoming what I think Ivan Illich criticizes, which is the, these self-perpetuating, really just money-making machines yeah. in our context where it's like, you're not actually serving. Sorry, this is... Oh, there's, this better, too, there's better ways to make money than to start a seminary. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and so when when you think about it through that angle, it really is this question of how, how do we better reintegrate yeah. what's going on here? Um, and this, I, I don't know if this will be like a left turn down another another rabbit trail, but I th- I think that part of this question also has to do with it, it is the question of cost. Um, who? So the model right we, we, that we have right now is that it, it's largely it, it's on, on the, the individual. individual. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and so we've created. We've created kind of this professionalization of ministry where you have to have this degree to be considered legit. This degree may or may not actually help you do what you're supposed to do, but you have to have this degree, especially the MDiv for many denominations or, or churches. Um, and it's totally on the individual then to, to bear the financial cost and, and risk of that. Uh, and again, what, what model takes, mm-hmm. takes that, that place? Uh, it's not to eradicate the need for the individual to bear some of that risk and cost. Um, but currently, it seems like we've set up a model, again, that just says this is about individuals. Uh, it, it's not about churches and individuals and educational institutions and right. partnership. Um, it very much just follows the broader cultural yeah. framework for education. Yeah. And, I mean, parallels a lot with, like, universities and stuff. Yes, there's going to be people who give to, like, scholarships. Um, in the Christian Reformed Church, we have classes who give grants and stuff like that. They don't cover the full cost of, of, for the individual by any means, um, but there are, there are some contributions to it, but there's not really that kind of institutional planning. And I think then you'd also see um, maybe a higher percentage of those getting their MDivs who actually serve in a church well, hmm. because you're if collectively we're responsible yeah. for who's going into the churches and who's our leadership, then individuals who might think they're called or might want to do this just because they're interested in learning languages and 
you know, learning more theology and stuff, and the only op- option is to go be a pastor, you might see less and less of that um, because there is a collective. It's not just on the seminary to be the vetting process where ironically, I mean, this is another thing that popped into my head is with the de-schooling thing. Are we even testing and validating people based on the things that are going to be useful for them in ministry? Yeah. I mean, in our in our master's classes here, at least the one that I've taught, it's a bit different than what I had at seminary and, and even some that we do at the undergrad where, yeah, you can be a good test taker yeah, and get straight A's, but taking tests does not actually serve you all that well in ministry. Yeah. Because... <laughs> I never had a single multiple choice or essay test when I was a pastor. Yeah. I had to write a lot. I had to, you know, pull my thoughts together. I had to speak a lot, obviously. I had to lead a lot, but there's no tests. So it's just kind of a weird way that we evaluate whether or not someone is qualified to get a degree that's intended to have them serve in the church. Yeah. Which, again, I love the way this conversation kind of <laughs> goes up, up and down and here and there. But so talk a little bit about uh, the the spiritual formation class that you taught yeah. in the and that you teach in the Master of Ministry program. Because I think just even from our perspective as professors, thinking through these things has really changed what kind of assignments I give and yeah. what I'm looking for students to produce. So... Uh, talk a little bit about what you actually asked people to do. And because I think that helps to kind of flesh out right, what, what, what does this look specifics like? Specifics to it. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I did kind of two major assignments. We had other assignments along the way, but one was that each of them constructed their own personal portfolio of spiritual formation and discipling. So we spent a lot of time just, just, just describing what the difference between all these uses of the term discipleship is. Um, far more, maybe that's its own podcast episode, is 17 uses of the word discipleship. Yeah. Um, but so what I wanted them to do was look at their own lives, and some of many of them already have spiritual discipline, spiritual practices embedded into it. Some of them they didn't even realize that they do like regular church attendance. Hmm. That's a spiritual discipline. That's yeah. a spiritual practice. Well, I don't have to be disciplined to do it. That's just what I do. Right. But you've, because you've developed this rhythm. So had them look at their own rhythms of life and then look at these different communities, whether it's their family, a small group. Um, we talked about missional communities, the church at large, and see how do my spiritual rhythms intersect with other people's spiritual rhythms and who are some people Maybe it's only two or three, maybe it's groups of 50 or 100 that I, as a spiritual leader, am developing relationship with and helping them grow in their own spiritual life. Um, And so it's a very practical, and we did this multiple layers, um, a very practical assignment that they used not only for themselves, but then some of them actually implemented in their church setting, in their ministry context. Um, Set this up, one of them set it up for a youth ministry that they, they'd already done a lot of this stuff for the adults. And so then they were looking at doing this. How do I actually turn this into something for youth ministry? And then the second big uh, assignment that uh, I've talked about on here before is we did a podcast also. Yeah. That two students and sometimes three read different books and then they didn't write a book report. <laughs> they took notes and, you know, thought about it and processed it and then interacted with me and each other about what these books had to say about what it, uh, about spiritual formation and discipleship as spiritual leaders. 
Um, and the episodes were much longer than these are um, yeah. because they had a lot to say. Yeah. And there was a lot that we ended up talking about. But it was a really practical thing that was something that you actually would do in ministry. Yeah. Is you write a book report, nobody's reading it. But you might do a blog post about it. You might share about it. You as as people you know ask you what what do you recommend to read? You already have some ideas about here's what I would say about this kind of book. Yeah, yeah, and I love that idea because it again it, it even recognizes that um, you know reading and processing something is a discipline. Right. But the way that that's going to manifest itself in a ministry context is not write an academic book review. Right. Uh, but to be able to process that and think through that through that with folks. So we did the book learning. Yeah. We did book good. learning. That's good. Book learning is yeah. good. Book learning is great. Yeah. But that's where even, and I think I've mentioned this before too, but with my mission of the church class, to me, it's a challenge because you do start to realize as a professor how much in a lot of ways, the things you assign, the things you do are just kind of carried on because that's what right. you knew. And right. that's what, when you went to school, right. well, there were... right two big exams and a big paper, and that's what it is, without really stopping to ask, what is the actual goal? What's the right. outcome that you're looking for? And especially with a program like this to say, you know, the, the point is, we don't want people to get to the end of the program and say, now how now how do I bridge the gap right. between this program and my ministry context? We want to actually have the program be designed to be doing that all along the way. And so... Um, something as practical as writing a mission statement or better implementing yeah. a mission statement or just taking steps to get yourself to the place in ministry where you can do that. You know, it's challenging for a professor because it's not a one size fits all. People right. come from different ministry contexts. And so there has to be a kind of openness to uh, working, uh, recognizing that learning is this incremental process yeah. and starting where people are at and figuring out what are the next steps you need to take in your ministry context rather than just saying, it's a lot easier to just say, here's the boilerplate assignment, do this because it saves me time. It saves me energy. I can just read all this stuff written by, you know, through the exact same lens and never have to go back and say, yeah, but is this useful for, is this actually a wise stewarding of the time and energy and money uh, and we're like, well, it's helping them get a degree, right? right? So that's the end goal, right? right? Just getting a degree. Yeah. And the students are used to and expect the boilerplate as well. It's and disconcerting. So, it, right. So, I mean, for this this major assignment, the spiritual formation one, that I had it set up where it was your context, your people, you, like th- none of them looked the same. And it was hard initially for the students. That's why I did this layered and incremental. It was hard for the students to be like, wait, what are you looking for for this? What yeah. What are the, and I gave them parameters. I mean, I didn't just, you know, let them fly blind or whatever, but that it was, it was hard for them to also, because we've conditioned them in, in schooling to have this, like, here's exactly what you have to do. Meet this template, fill these things in, check these boxes and you get your A. And again, that's not really all that helpful for practical life and learning. Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, again, part of what it teaches them is you, they learn how to adapt themselves to the culture of schooling. Right. But they become less attentive to their own actual ministry culture and and the context of what that's about. And even just learning in general of like how people learn and how people grow and 
Yeah. So, I mean, when I think about this, this, you know, part of the challenge too is this idea that in traditional seminary models, um, you have uh, pretty massive amounts of time. So an, an MDiv right. is 80, 90, 100 credits. And so, again, if you're not in the academic world, that's almost a full another four full years. Right. Usually four or five classes every semester, fall and winter. Yeah. And so, you know, again, it strikes me that um, that model of MDiv is built off a time and a place and a culture where the assumption is, again, I'm just, I'm going to kind of withdraw from my everyday life and the, and, and ministry context. And actually you can't be, super active in right. a ministry context if you are in four or five classes at a time you've got a full load now add on to that the way things have changed in the last several decades and you're talking about mdiv students who are uh, all over the place in terms of where they're at in life people coming back uh, and, and pursuing ministry as a second vocation uh, and the question is how do you what, what is sustainable ministry education and it, it seems to me that the model that we have right now, it actually it actually does people a disservice because it it trains them. Either you're gonna have to do one of two things, either you're gonna have to go to school half to full time, right, and stretch it out, kill yourself, um, be make it pretty difficult on your family life, on ministry life. You can't do all those things well. It, it's just too much, and so we we train people up in this model and then we scratch our heads and think like man why why are pastors why are they so, so fast? yeah they're, they're burning out why are they so unhealthy in terms of their you know emotional health in terms of their overall psychological even spiritual health yeah uh, and so to me the challenge i mean i can see why especially at churches that are maybe larger that can do their own in-house training they're like we don't want people to do that yeah. uh, that that's because you get into these habits again, the discipline, right? Right. The, yeah. How do we think about how those are in some ways, very unspiritual disciplines, uh, so to speak of what you're learning in terms of time and work and energy and, and burnout. Um, whereas again, this is why thinking about what, how do you equip people with what's most essential, right? Uh, in a way that recognizes all of these things and says, I mean, yeah, this is the, Sorry, this might sound bad because I love languages. I mean, I love Greek. I love Hebrew. But does it make sense to say to people who are going into ministry, you got to invest a huge amount of time uh, in learning the Greek, in learning the Hebrew? Um, again, I think if you ask any pastor in ministry, is you know, is that is that at times interesting or helpful? Sure. Yeah. But is that essential? It, especially if you think about it, is that the time and energy and proportion that we put into that in seminary right. equal to what it looks like in a, in a ministry context? And I don't know any pastor who would say, yes, the time and energy you put into the learning the original languages, I spend that much time in the, on the Greek and Hebrew in my average week. Yeah. And so the question is not to dismiss the importance of the original languages, but again, to think about what's most essential and maybe you flip it and say, rather than saying first and second year students at seminary, you need to learn Greek and Hebrew. It's like, you know what? Get the essentials 
right? With the way we've tried to boil them down in our 30, 36 credits, you know, two years, get the essentials that's going to equip you um, for what you need to do. And then, you know, if it works, yeah, go back, you know, take some Continue Greek classes, yeah. take some Hebrew to, if you want to dive in more there, but, but I don't know. I, I, yeah. I love languages, but I think that the system that we have set up, all things considered, I'm not sure how important those are. Well, especially given the tools we have now. I mean, I think there there is a, a helpful layer of understanding language and translation, interpretation, yeah. those kind of things. And, um, you know, literal, figurative, word for word, all that kind of stuff. I think there is some helpfulness to that. I think I think the point you raise about the proportionality of it is the is the good one that. Yeah. How much time and energy is actually spent, especially in those first years of seminary, learning Greek and Hebrew. Um, and and I think it's also, again, indicates that we didn't really we 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 didn't really have a clear understanding of how what we're doing at seminary with the Master of Divinity in particular is is setting us up for pastoral work when some of them are it's designed to go on to do doctoral work. Yeah. Some of us need to have the languages for the work that we did later in our studies. Right. Um, and it's really important that somebody somewhere faithful and trustworthy understands the Hebrew language and the Greek language really, really, really well. Yeah. Um, and then the rest of us are utilizing those resources and tools that are available. And, I mean, pastors really end up doing that anyway because you don't have 20 hours a week to read the Greek and translate the Hebrew and all that. I mean, when I was doing my sermons early on, I read it in Greek and translated as part of my preparation for sermon. Um, I still read the, the, the text in Greek before I preach it. Um, Hebrew, I have to use a lot more tools. Yeah. I haven't kept up with that as well. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't want to, yeah, like you, I don't want to discount the languages, but I, I don't know that they're at the top of the list. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's part of it with you, you talk about tweaking the curriculum for MDiv, what what gets thrown out, what doesn't get included once you've already built something. I mean, the yeah. 100 or 90 credits is now a scaled back version of what used to be 120 credits. Yeah. And so, you know, how many church histories do you have? How many hermeneutics classes do you have? How many systematic theology classes do you have? Well, we got to have evangelism in there. We got to have this in there. You know, yeah. I mean, it just, it, it piles up. And so, yeah, it's that... Uh, what kind of learning do you need that's essential to to know that this is the calling that God has placed on your life and that you have the skills and equipping to serve your local context well? Yeah. That's what we're trying to do with the master ministry. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe that's a good transition point. We've we could probably keep going on about this, but I want to I want to kind of wrap this up and just say a couple things about the master ministry program just to give people an idea of I mean, this is what we're wrestling with. This is how we've put things together at this point. Um, but hopefully we are uh, open enough and flexible enough to, to really continually come back to the question, does this actually serve the church? Right. Does it right. actually serve? I mean, that's what this program was built on. Yeah. Was that we're designing this for the church. We're not designing this to perpetuate our institution. Yeah. Which is a very different framework, I right. think, than a lot of people have. And so, so you know, when we say 36 credits, that's 12 classes. 12 three-credit classes um, that 
again, the assumption is these classes are all designed around um, two learning communities so that the goal is not for people to write a, a big academic paper, um, even though that'd be nice, right. uh, but to actually say, what are you going to do with that in your ministry context? How, how do you apply that? Uh, and so uh, classes on preaching and teaching the Old and New Testament, classes on theological issues, again, not just seeing it as a systematic piece, but how do you have, how do you have good discussions in your local mm-hmm. church context mm-hmm. around contentious theological issues today? And so that's, that there's always this eye to, yeah, we want to be able to dive deep into the books, but yeah, we need to know how do you navigate this in a, in a ministry context? Um, courses on spiritual formation and pastoral care, the mission of the church, and then uh, a mix of specialty courses yeah. that you know, I'm excited about They're because really it, it gives us a chance to be to be flexible, to think about what is what is really helpful for people to dig into today to help them in their own life and, and ministry. Um, and so even in the, the next upcoming year, you know, some of those courses are, are courses like neuroscience and uh, spiritual formation with Chuck mm-hmm. DeGroote is going to be teaching that class for us, uh, a class with uh, Carol Hochholter that revolves around uh, the Calvin Worship Symposium that yeah. actually, again, integrates that time of learning into the actual class itself uh, and thinking about how, how some of those things uh, look and work out. Um, classes from Brian Telzerow on financial management in ministry. Yeah. Again, a huge piece that in a lot of ways is just missing yeah. from many, um, many uh, MDiv programs or seminary tracks. Um, a class, Dr. Rochelle White is teaching a class on uh, trauma-informed pastoral mm-hmm. care and ministry. Mm-hmm. So just trying to be attentive to things that are going to be useful for the church, useful for people in, in ministry. Um, and the way that these classes are set up is, is essentially you do one class at a time. They're eight-week courses. It's a full three credits. But that way, again, the, the hope is, is that that creates a more sustainable rhythm. Yeah. It creates a, more, a, a model of spiritual and emotional health that says, you know, we actually do expect that people probably do have a life and, a, and maybe a family right. and maybe, you know, a job or multiple jobs that they're, that they're working as they walk through the path that, that God has called them to. Uh, and so trying to, be, trying to be open to that and really trying to connect ourselves with partner churches, people who have yeah. a similar mindset to say, again, how do we reintegrate theological education, ministry education, and the church, right. that these are not... It's not do your thing over there, church, and we're going to do our thing over here, and hopefully this will all work out. It's much more like we need to be in constant conversation and working actually together, unified toward yes. this goal. Yeah. Um, so doing that's it together. Doing it together. Partnership is good. Uh, well, we could go. We could go <laughs> on. We've got a little bit over our time limit. But this is one of our favorite topics to to talk about and and discuss. And so, yeah, I appreciate uh, you listening. And if you have questions, thoughts, uh, we. We'd love to hear from you and engage that. So, Jeff, thanks for being with us. Yes, it's great to be here again. All right. We'll talk to you next time.